Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this Easter Sunday morning. Um, today we're going to talk about the resurrection, but in order to get there in a way that is most meaningful for us, we're going to talk about death first a little bit. We're going to talk about funerals. So the most recent funeral I went to was one of a mentor of mine, a friend uh, in Nashville, and I mean, he knew the Lord, and uh, so it was a, a celebration because of the resurrection, and there was a video uh, montage put together for him, and the last person to speak um, at his funeral in this montage was Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, uh, if you know Tim Keller, he wrote this book, Hope in Times of Fear, the, meaning of the Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. I would recommend this book to you highly. He's written a lot of books, but this is one of his most recent books. It's a beautiful book on Easter. But Tim Keller remarked, he said, you know, as, as I consider the sudden passing of Jay, I'm reminded that death really is the great enemy. It really is the great enemy. But Jesus Christ has conquered death through his resurrection. So that was the most recent funeral I've been to. The first funeral I remember going to was the funeral of a nine-year-old boy. I was seven. He was a friend of mine. His name was Joel Peters. Uh, somehow Joel, um, he was sick, and he was in the bathtub. And it, we don't really know, I don't know what happened uh, here exactly, but somehow he fainted in the bath and drowned in his bathtub. And I remember there being seven years old, and I knew him. I kind of looked up to him. He was a couple of grades above me. And I remember seeing his mother, and I remember understanding for the first time that something is really wrong. Something's really wrong in the world. So that was the first funeral that I remember going to. This last week, a friend of mine, he's not a super close friend, but he's someone that I know somewhat. He owns the uh, Sola Coffee Shop in North Raleigh. Uh, his name is John Luther. It's a great coffee shop. His wife, Jean, uh, just passed away this week after a three-and-a-half-year battle with ALS. Uh, if you're familiar with ALS, it's one of the most cruel and painful and debilitating diseases that anyone can have. And John, because of the prominence of Sola in the community in Raleigh, was actually quoted in WRAL this past Wednesday. You can look up the article. It's a great article. But he says this, and they quote him. Listen to this. Listen to how the resurrection can change your perspective on death. He says, In God's providence, my dear wife and mama to Ben, Mara, Sally, and many staff over the years at Sola has gone home to be with our Savior. The hard gift of ALS over these last three and a half years has given us the opportunity to experience a severe and prolonged suffering in a redemptive way. God has used ALS to loosen our grip on the things of this world, to move our hearts toward heaven in Jesus, where, quoting Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The pain, I'm just going to go back, the painful gift of ALS has loosened our grip on the things of this world, moving our hearts toward heaven and Jesus when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
This is an unbelievable perspective in the face of three and a half years of walking with his wife and, and experiencing her dying, that the resurrection has changed his view of death so profoundly. He's put his hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so profoundly. He and Jean, as she faced death, it's unbelievable. Last week, my parents visited, and I, I heard from my dad that Bruce Peters, the father of Joel Peters, is now in a Bible study with my dad 38 years later, and he is leading mission trips regularly to Africa to bless people in Africa. It's amazing that in, in the face of losing your child, in the face of losing your wife, that the resurrection has such a profound impact on our view and understanding of what is real, that Jesus Christ, if he really has been raised from the dead, by the way, I looked at the news this morning, I looked at BBC, I looked at CNN, I looked at all the major news outlets, no one believes that the news that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead is worth putting on the front page right now. No one. You can read about a lot of other things that are going on that are also important, but if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then everything changes. It means there's a new beginning in the world. It means that death, which has broken the world, in Genesis 3, there's this marring of the world. It means that a new beginning has come. It means that a new eschaton, to use a big theological word, a, a new reality has entered into the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And indeed, according to John Luther, and according to Revelation 21.4, all things will be made new. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is the beautiful promise of the gospel that death is being worked backwards. Indeed, all those sad things will come untrue because of the resurrection of Jesus. I know that for some of you in this room, you have lost dear loved ones who, are, who believed in Jesus. They were in the Lord. And so for you today, this Resurrection Sunday is a different kind of day you understand that the resurrection really is your only hope. It really is our only hope. It truly is our hope, what Jesus Christ has done. You know, today, uh, as we look at Luke chapter 7, we see that Jesus apparently didn't like going to funerals. You know, he didn't like going to funerals. Every time he shows up at a funeral, he turns it into a resurrection service. Um, and so he, once again, is traveling, and he comes upon course, in his sovereignty, he knew this was going to be happening. He comes upon this widow. So we're going to look at Luke 7. We're going to see how these moments with the centurion and the widow show us a preview of the resurrection power of Christ as he, it is breaking into the world through him. Even before his resurrection, he can't stop raising people up. He can't stop raising people up from sickness and death. So let's look at this in Luke 7 together. First of all, we're going to talk about the situation, the situation that we are faced with and these two people, the centurion and his servant and the widow and her son, is that we have a sickness unto death. We have a sickness unto death. The centurion's servant, first of all, so Jesus is ministering in Capernaum. It's in the northern part of what you would understand to be the map of Israel, where Jewish elders come up and speak to Jesus on behalf of this centurion. And they tell Jesus the centurion's resume. Like, this guy is a prominent figure. He's a good man. He contributed to the building of our synagogue and all this stuff. And they tell him that the centurion's close personal 
servant was very sick and was about to die. So through the eyes of Luke the doctor, let's get a little bit more deep into what it means to be sick unto death. Phil Riken says this, to be sick and about to die means that the people caring for him had already begun to see the telltale signs of his imminent demise, listlessness, detachment, and a desperate struggle for every last breath. The death watch had begun. But the centurion, his master, loved him. The centurion was a man of means. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of power in the community. But he recognized that he could do nothing for this man in the face of death. He's the type of person, the centurion, that knows that in in military circumstances, he can carry out an order, and that order is followed, and things change. But in this situation, there is no order he can give to change his servant's life. And so that is the situation with the centurion and his servant. With the widow's son, Jesus leaves Capernaum, which is a larger town, and goes to the small town of Nain. Nain was about five miles east of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So as Jesus enters the city, he has a substantial group of followers, and his followers immediately run into this huge funeral procession that it, it, for that small town that is extending down the hill. They're going outside of the city, and he can tell immediately, everyone can tell what's going on with this funeral service because they were conducted in a similar way in that time. What you had is you had the pallbearers carrying a casket, an open casket. Following the casket, you had uh, sometimes even paid people that would come and they would mourn and they would wail, depending on the the size of the family and the, the accessibility of people to be there. Everyone was entitled to having a group of people with them in this, and so they would even go out and hire people to come in, and these people would be wailing. They would be dropping flower petals behind because of the stench of death that was going forward. And then the widow, and if she had a family, the family of the deceased would be out in front of the casket. And so as the widow is in front, it's very obvious to Jesus as as he is there that she indeed must be a widow. That's the only reason a woman would be alone in front of a casket like this. And so Jesus knows that not only has this woman now lost her son, that she had traveled this exact same road before. Before she had traveled down this road, she was mourning the loss of her husband. And so now, unbelievably, for the second time, she is going down that same hill to bury now her son in that same tomb where her husband had been buried previously. And so she is utterly destitute. Not only has she lost these two people in her life, these these most meaningful people in her life, but in that day and age in the ancient Near East, if you did not have a husband or you did not have a son who could help provide for you, then you really truly would be utterly destitute. There was no life insurance. There, there There was no plan. She didn't have, she probably did not have any kind of meaningful employment. So not only is she destitute in terms of law, she is destitute and she is utterly vulnerable financially. So we all share in the same sickness unto death. Even though we are not in this story, we have to understand that we are part of this story of the world. We're part of the brokenness of this world. That God did not create things to be this way. In Genesis 1 and 2, he set up the world for life. But sin broke in and brought death into the world. And so now death really is the great enemy. 
And our own personal sins and the sins that have marred creation in this world mean that we have a sickness that will end in death unless someone else comes along and changes the narrative. So that's the situation. Now, secondly, the response. The response is that Jesus is moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion. The question here we need to ask ourselves is, what moves Jesus to show compassion? What moves Jesus? Is it our demographics that move Jesus? Well, first of all, in these 17 verses, we can learn that that there are no social, economic, gender, ethnic, there's not even a dead or alive barrier that will determine whether or not Jesus shows you compassion, okay? You have a Gentile centurion, massive cultural power, money, authority, status, relationships. You have his slave, no cultural power, no status, little money. He did have some relationships. He had people who loved him. You have a destitute Jewish widow. We have a woman with no power, no money in a nondescript town. She is virtually unknown, and now very little connections. And we have a dead young man. Finally, we have the most desperate person of all. We have a dead man. He has nothing. He is dead completely. And so the commonality between all of these people, these four people, is that they are desperate and utterly vulnerable. Without help from outside, they, they're lost, lost in death. So the first option is that our demographics is no. Jesus doesn't care about the resume of the centurion. (laughs) And the reason why we know about that is because later on the centurion comes along and the centurion knows. Apparently he knows Jesus a lot better than these religious leaders of Israel because the centurion comes along and instead of the narrative he wants Jesus to hear is the one the elders gave him and they said, uh, you know, this guy's a prominent man, he built our synagogue, you should come help him out. The centurion's like, no, 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 no. I am not worthy in any way for you to come under my roof. I am not worthy. In fact, I don't even deserve your time. I don't deserve any of your time, Jesus. You're way too important. You're way too important for me. And so I am just merely asking you to say the word. So he understands that it's not, it's not the demographics that move Jesus' heart. The second option, and, and the centurion's already on to this, is that our good works that move Jesus to show compassion. And, and the answer we know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is that it is not our good works. It's not our resume building. It's not our net worth. It's not our social connections. None of that moves Jesus' heart. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. Jesus is not looking at your good works. He's not accruing this in his, somehow his, his meter, you know, where he, you know, the tabulations are going up or down based on how you're doing in a given day, and then he's like, well, since you, no, he's not doing that. He is simply moved, he is simply moved, not by good works, but by grace. And we know this also, not only from how the centurion responds to him, who understands who Jesus is, he knows he needs grace, Look at the woman. Is it her good works that moves Jesus to show compassion? No. She is so lost in her grief that she's not even aware that Jesus is there. She's just 
grieving. She's just in this worst moment of her entire life. She doesn't say a thing. She doesn't even acknowledge that he's there. She's surprised that he, she doesn't even, maybe even know he, he even exists, potentially. She's just living on the worst day of her life. And Jesus comes in. Our resumes did not move the heart of God, but God moves toward us anyway. The third option, what moves Jesus to show compassion? Is it our faith that moves him? So let's talk about that in this passage. So very clearly, Jesus is impressed with the faith of the centurion. I mean, we need to talk about his faith where he says, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This man's faith amazes Jesus. Why? Because finally someone gets who he is. Someone understands. I mean, somehow the centurion, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but, but he has a glimpse into this divine reality that it really is military-like, that the authority of Jesus' words really do carry even greater authority than that same military-like figure. In fact, he refers to Jesus as the Lord. He refers to Jesus as the Lord, and he sees Jesus as, in a sense, in his own worldview, the greatest military leader, the greatest emperor who has command over life and death, and somehow Jesus is like, wow, this man gets me in a way that other people did not. We also find Jesus in Mark 6, chapter 6, verse 6, where he's amazed in the reverse. He's actually in his hometown of Nazareth, only five miles up the road, and he's amazed at their unbelief. He's amazed. So what amazes Jesus is one way or the other. If, if you have this faith and you really understand who he is, Jesus is like, wow, he, he takes note of that. On the other hand, if you don't believe and, and you're sitting there right next to him, like we were talking about the other night uh, with the two thieves uh, at the cross, uh, the thief that did not believe, that, that kind of unbelief amazes Jesus too um, because people don't understand who he is. So our faith matters to Jesus. He does notice our faith. It can impress him or depress him. But let's be careful here. Does does God show compassion in this situation on the servant of the centurion because of the faith of the centurion? Is that why he shows compassion? Well, let's ask the question, where did the man's faith come from? J.C. Ryle says this. He says, look at the kindness of the centurion. How can we account for one who was you know, this is, he wrote a little while back here. He says, a heathen by birth and a soldier by profession showing such a spirit as this. The Holy Spirit has opened the eyes and understanding and put a new heart in this man. And then he goes on to say, look at the humility of the centurion. Ralph says, I do not, or the, the centurion says, I do not deserve you to come under my roof. Humility like this is one of the strongest evidences of the indwelling spirit of God. We know nothing like this by nature Our nature is to be proud. So the Holy Spirit had been working in the centurion's heart that he would understand who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit had had made him humble, even though he was a man of prominence. The Holy Spirit had made him humble. So our faith isn't the reason why 
he moves toward us with compassion. And the reason why we know this is more clearly from the story of the widow. Um, She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't have time. Jesus just intervenes. What moves Jesus to, to compassion, to use his authority with compassion, is his own great heart. In his own heart, he just determines to show compassion to those who are broken and in need of his grace. This woman does nothing. She believes nothing to sway the compassion of Jesus. He is moved to compassion before she even recognizes him. So why is Jesus moved? Well, perhaps he saw in her a preview of what his own mother would experience after his crucifixion occurred. Or perhaps in this woman, he saw in her the mourning of all the mothers who have lost children to death. Perhaps he saw in her this microcosm of everything that is wrong. And he said, no, not today. It is not going to happen today. And he's moved with compassion against our great enemy, death. And so he walks up and literally, like in an old western, he taps the casket and he says, not, not today. And so the third point today is, is the power of Jesus, the, the power, the authority to speak life. So Jesus doesn't just sympathize with you, okay? Um, if, if all Jesus had done with this woman had walked up and given her a hug and said what he says to her, he says, do not weep. That would have been emotionally obtuse at best, cruel at worst. Of course she should be weeping. This is the worst day of her life. It's about to be a great day. She didn't know that. He's not just, he's not just sensitive to your needs. He doesn't just sympathize with your needs. He's not just empathetic to you. He is those things. But he actually does what we need him to do about our real problem, our real problem, which is death. Now, you may wonder what kind of a difference Jesus speaking life over a person can actually make. I mean, Jesus' words, how powerful can they really be? They're just words, right? Well, the centurion understood that when Jesus spoke, things happened, just like for him, when he spoke, things happened. But even in a greater sense, a much greater sense, when Jesus spoke the word, when he spoke life, then life would happen. He believed that. It had been revealed to him by God. He understood that when Jesus speaks life, it leads to life every time. He starts in verse 6 by saying, Lord, he understands he's a man in authority. Lord, say the word and my servant will be healed. This is one of the most amazing miracles of Jesus, if you're going to rank them. Um, I think the resurrection is number one. Uh, number two might be this one, because Jesus performs the miracle without being there. It's, he's usually there. At least he's in the room. He's around. But he actually is doing something else. He's, he's doing something else. And he just says the word. I don't know what he said exactly, but, but he was healed. The, ser- the, the servant was healed. It's amazing. Jesus doesn't have to be physically present with you to heal you. He doesn't have to be physically present with your loved one or the person you care about and pray about all the time to heal them. 
to raise them up. He doesn't have to be physically present. All he has to do is say the word. So Jesus then shows us his authority over life and death in the second story. So Jesus takes a few steps up the hill and touches the casket. He touches the casket. And the text says, after Jesus touched the casket, those carrying it stood still. I would imagine so. I would imagine so. If you're, I mean, in that day, I mean, people died. They had a much lower life expectancy than we do. Here in our culture, we kind of separate ourselves from death. In that culture, death happened more often, and death happened publicly. Everybody had seen how these funeral processions work, and this is not how it works. This is not how it works. It doesn't work like this. It doesn't work with a rabbi walking into the procession and touching the casket. And so the people stop. Why, why do they stop? Well, a couple of reasons. One is it's just not done, and two is because a dead body is ceremonially unclean. And so for Jesus, a rabbi, or anyone to touch a dead body, uh, usually what would happen is for that person to become unclean. So death has an effect where death leads to death. Death leads to this experience of uncleanness, which, which kind of symbolizes the curse and death. But for Jesus, when he touches the casket, it works in reverse. Life goes to death. Life goes into death and and leads to greater life. Jesus was different, and he knew he was different. He knew he could touch what is unclean and make it clean because he can touch what is dead and make it alive. And so Jesus unleashes life with his words in verse 14. He says, young man, I say to you, get up. So Jesus, he doesn't use a lot of adjectives. He doesn't, it's not long, it's not a long prayer. He doesn't put a lot of effort into making sure he gets all his words just right. He just says what needs to be said, very simply. He says, I say you get up, and then in verse 15 we read, and this it sounds absurd if you think about it, but it says the dead man sat up and started talking. And so what's happening here is Luke's trying to explain what happens It happens when Jesus is in the room. When Jesus is in the room, we have to be prepared to abandon ideas that we previously thought were immovable. Ideas like death gets the final word. And so Luke is trying to explain in English something that can't be explained. Not in English, in Greek at the time, but now we're reading it in English. It doesn't make sense, but it makes sense if Jesus is there. It makes sense if Jesus says the word over us. He has military-like casket-tapping authority over life and death. Nothing can stand in the way of his resurrection power. So how should we respond to this compassion authority of Jesus? How should we respond to him? Well, if Jesus, if all we see are these two amazing stories in Luke chapter 7, all we can really put our hope in is two stories that show us uh, maybe an aberration generally in a greater narrative that ultimately still leads to death. What we find are two miracles that are amazing, that make us stop for a second, and we're like, wow. You know, that's, some, that's incredible that that happened in history. 
But that's not all that happens because ultimately what Jesus is doing here is he's showing a preview of something that's even greater than these two miracles. He's showing a preview of his own resurrection. He's showing a preview of his own life, what happens when he rises from the dead and breaks into the world. For anyone who believes in him, for anyone who Jesus speaks the word of life over, they have life in him forevermore. Ultimately, Jesus knew we all have the same sickness, the sickness that leads to death. And so he goes to the source of the problem at the cross. He deals with public enemy number one, which is sin at the cross. He deals with our sin. He takes it upon himself. He dies. He sheds his blood for the remission of sins for all who will believe. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. He deals with public enemy number two, death. Sin leads to death. He deals with the root of the problem. He deals with the consequence of the problem. He deals with death at the empty tomb. And he's raised up so that if we will believe in him, we can have forgiveness of sins and life evermore. You know, maybe on this Easter, you're like the centurion and you've tried everything in your power to to make life happen. And you have exhausted your resources. Maybe you're a person of considerable potential, considerable resources. Maybe you have some authority at work or in society. But you realize that you, you don't have the answers for this. And you need life. You need life that can come from outside of you. Nothing you give or buy or do is enough. Or maybe you're like the widow and you're on the other end of the social spectrum or even just emotionally and just kind of where you are in life, you can relate to her and you recognize that you are broken and you're destitute and you don't have resources. And, and really, if Jesus, does, Jesus doesn't break in and show you life, you know that you don't have anything. And so you, you can relate to her. But wherever you are, whether you're more like the centurion or the widow or somewhere in between, you're looking to Jesus I want you to know that your grief has not been unnoticed by Jesus. You know, it could be, yes, you, you have believed in Jesus, and you know that you need him, but you also carry with you a grief. It could be from the loss of a loved one. It could be a grief that has to do with someone in your life that that you've been praying for desperately and you really need them to maybe be physically healed or spiritually healed, or you just need the Lord to do things that you can't do. And I think one of the most encouraging things about this story on this Easter is that our prayers do not fall on deaf ears. That Jesus knows, and Jesus listens, and Jesus understands. And that we may not understand the ways that he acts, but he is at work with his compassion, authority, and he is, he is giving it out. He is, he, it, is, it, is, it is going out from him now and his resurrection power. You know, when Jesus came, and we see in Luke 7, we find in the resurrection, his life broke into the world so that there is a, a massive change to the direction of human history. This is not an aberration. This is a new beginning. It's the writing of a new narrative. If the resurrection is true, and death is being worked backwards, if death is not the final enemy and all who hope in Christ actually have life now, but actually will have life forevermore, then this is the greatest news story today. This is certainly the greatest news story the centurion or the widow ever ever would have imagined. 
and it's the greatest story for you today. My encouragement for you is to hope in Jesus Christ. He is, he is your Lord. He is there for you with compassionate authority. If you've never trusted in him, this could be your day to trust in him for new life, to give you what you cannot give yourself, which is the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. And if you have trusted in Jesus, and maybe you're continuing to trust in Jesus for a loved one that still needs to come to know him or has something going on in their life, you can know that Jesus hears you and loves you and is acting even now to save you and to to come to the aid of those that you love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that we would see you for who you are, I pray that you'd help us to see like the centurion did, that in the midst of the circumstances of our lives, which are, are truly challenging, that we can t- continue to hope in you. And Lord, for those of us who just feel like we haven't been a- even aware of you lately, we were just so overwhelmed by our lives, Lord. We're just so grateful that, that that's okay. It's, it's okay because you see us and you know us and you love us, Lord. Lord, would you work today in our hearts? Would you help us this Easter amid all that Easter can become culturally? Uh, Lord, don't let us miss the reason, the real reason behind Easter, which is your resurrection from the dead that truly changes everything. It changes everything because you are the Lord of life. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name.